Hey, what's up, everybody? John Odermatt here, host of Felony Friday. And did you know that we have a weekly show dedicated to sports and gambling and telling ridiculous stories? It's not a uh, public show. It's behind our paywall in the Lions of Liberty Pride. It's called Degenerate Gamblers. It is myself and Brian McWilliams and the elusive legal counsel of the Lions of Liberty, Rico. And every week on Degenerate Gamblers, we review what's going on in college football, pro football. Maybe we talk a little bit of playoff baseball. Not much, though. But more importantly, we tell ridiculous stories from our daily lives and from our past. So... In order to get access to that, you got to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty to get access. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is not the only show on Lions of Liberty. If this is your first time, if you stumbled across this podcast, you're like, what the heck am I listening to? This is a bit of a variety show. We kick off every week, every Monday, with a show hosted by Mark Clare. It is a mostly an interview-style show where Mark brings on different uh, characters in the liberty movement uh, to talk politics, to talk philosophy, to talk all kinds of uh, interesting things. On Wednesday, we have more of a laid-back, off-the-cuff show hosted by Brian McWilliams. Brian, we like to say he brings you your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And of course... Every Friday, this beautiful show right here where I shine a light on the broken criminal justice system. Today's show, we're going to be talking about vaping. What's going on in the vape market? Prohibition, all the different things. Is it bad? I mean, I think it is, but let's learn why more prohibition would be worse for the vaping market and less safe. We'll get to that in a minute. I'll introduce my guest in a minute. But before I do that, I just want to let you guys know, today's episode, this is the 199th episode of Felony Friday. Oh my God, almost to 200. I can't believe it. That obviously means the show notes page can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF199. Let's just jump into the show. Let's do it. My guest today on Felony Friday is Randall Meyer. Randall is the executive director for the Global Alliance for Cannabis Commerce. Uh, Previously, uh, Mr. Meyer served as a legislative counsel to Senator Rand Paul before entering private practice as a litigator and lobbyist in a top D.C. firm. His work on the topics of cannabis and criminal justice reform have been published widely in such outlets as the Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, New York Post, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, National Law Journal, and Newsweek. Randall, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you on the show. And I reached out to you, I don't know, a couple days ago. I saw a piece in the San Francisco Chronicle that uh, you and your colleague at the uh, Global Alliance for Cannabis Commerce wrote, uh, you and Jason Beck, who's 
uh, the founding director and vice president there. And uh, really, it's centered around something that I think it's a really important topic right now. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of misinformation with uh, with regards to the vaping and what's dangerous, what's not, and, and all that stuff. And I want to get into really the details of that article, the stuff you explained, the different uh, resources that were cited. Uh, but before we do that, I think it's it's good for my audience to get to know you a little better and get to know about your background. So if you could just start out by kind of sharing with us, you know, what got you interested, first of all, in cannabis? Sure. So uh, I, I kind of first approached it from an, an academic side. I could not understand this disunity between what is rational policy and what actually exists as policy at the federal level. Because cannabis is the safest adult use substance on the face face of the globe today. Uh, Medicinally, there's thousands of years of recorded use and uh, study on it to show that there are medical benefits, yet the the federal government since 1937 has taken this prohibitionist stance towards cannabis and allowed no research and and has only had a, a negative association with the with the product. So when I was in law school and when I was an undergrad, I got more into researching uh, exactly how this occurred, did some independent study on it. And it, it was just frustrating because there was no good reason for the policy to exist as it is. In fact, if you go back to the congressional debates in 1937 and look at uh, the argument over whether or not cannabis should have been legal or not, the legislators clearly did not understand what they were legislating about and the only real discussion was over whether or not such a bill should have brought, been brought up so late in the day with no one understanding what the bill was about. And then someone just mentioned it was about drugs, so they passed it. <laughs> so it's, so the, it, it's incredible because it seems like it's this strange mistake that governments just can't admit to and correct uh, in a reasonable way and really dive into that thing. And the consequences, not only in, in, on, the, on the industrial side, the, the loss of billions of dollars a year to the economy, but also on the criminal justice side, we're talking tons of lives, tons of years and decades of enforcement priorities mm-hmm. and everything that have, have torn away civil liberties in this because it, it just seems that the, there's such a distance that it, it drew in my interest. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I like how you put that too. It's like this, everyone knows this is a terrible mistake. So many people have been harmed. Um, All the evidence is there. Um, There's not evidence uh, that shows cannabis being dangerous. Um, There's, that's, that's not existing. Um, But, but at the same time, there are, or possibly there were some at the time that, uh, you know, cannabis was first prohibited, as you talked about when it was brought up congressionally way back when. There were some maybe some crony forces at play, right, with the the cotton industry and, and different things like that. Yeah, <laughs> sure. There's uh, it, it does appear that uh, some industries were working hand in hand with the federal government to, uh, shall we say, a propaganda campaign against a, a, a renamed substance that was known as cannabis. I mean, for example, cannabis was regulated as a medical substance in interstate trade from the uh, the original Food and Drug Act of uh, 04 or 07, all the way up until 1937. Uh, and then in 1938, it was not part of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act scheme. And now we are where we are today, 80 years later, because we're mm-hmm. still living under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act scheme. But up until it became illegal, this was regulated in interstate commerce as a drug by the federal government. There were standard formularies to produce in interstate commerce with labels that have congressional imprints from the U.S. pharmacopoeia from back in those days. Mm-hmm. 
And it's just incredible the, the flip that occurred there and the lack of uh, medical knowledge, because this was also done over the objections of the American Medical Association in the 30s. The, the AMA was abundantly clear that cannabis has medical value and medical effects, and it's used in a wide variety of standard formularies back then. Right. Now, it's, it, it's crazy that we are where we are today, and there's just more information, more misinformation and more misinformation that we seem to get. And that kind of brings us to really the main topic I, I want to talk about today and the topic of, of the article that, uh, that, that you and Jason wrote um, that really centers around this controversy around vaping. And, you know, how dangerous is vaping? Uh, we hear that, you know, more than a thousand people potentially have, have been uh, affected, but have, have had lung issues, have been admitted to hospitals. Um, there's been, I think, 18 deaths that have been cited that, that might have changed. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but what is, I, I guess you can just take us through, like, what is the truth here? Um what is causing these these deaths and and what is dangerous is it uh is it the vaping that people are the vapes that people are buying legally or is it uh black market uh you know merchandise so what we're finding evidentially is the the primary associated um origin of products with this with this vape related illness is the illicit thc market uh as the new england journal of medicine pointed out uh, doing a survey of number of cases, about 83% of people who reported to hospitals that they surveyed on these cases had had an illicit THC product or an e-nicotine product of unknown origin that accounted for the other 17%. Now, there's also been uh, a few cases that have been associated with legal products in states, uh, Oregon and Delaware, where um, there, there are some concerns over testing standards and such compared to California or, or other states where phase three testing is considered the gold standard of, of consumer safety. Uh, from at least an industry perspective. But the, the CDC and FDA have warned against vape use, and it's, it's obviously smart to follow the CDC and FDA's warnings on uh, what products to use and liability purpose for everyone's liabilities and safety uh, all around. The, but the, the origin of a lot of this stuff and what FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has uh, kind of put out in his writing as well mm -hmm. is these additives and concentrates that you see in the illicit market, uh, such as uh, propylene uh, glycolate, MCT oil, vitamin E acetate is one that's been pretty popular in the news, and, and any of these additives. The issue is that... Um, when you have all of these additives in, they're not something that is nearly a study. This you don't know what exactly what is safe. This is, and when you're buying from the illicit market, these are not products that are necessarily tested. Uh, for example, I think CannaSafe Labs did a, a, something with CBS News a bit back where they tested some illicit uh, market cartridges versus legal market cartridges and found that the illicit market cartridges all contained a fungicide that, when vaporized, turns into cyanide, oh, which wow. is obviously not great for the lungs. <laughs> But uh, the other public, the larger public policy implication here, though, is that cannabis prohibition, like we said in the article, it has deadly effects. If these products aren't regulated, if you, it's it's the same thing as if you're, when you look at these cartridges, it could be snake oil from the illicit market. You don't know what's in there. You do not know what it's been cut with. You don't know what mm -hmm. process or testing it's been through, or what the the plant was originally done through anyway. So even if you, you know, have had some extractor you've known for 10 years, you use a safe, who you think is a safe uh, extractor in the illicit market, you don't know what's been done to the plants that are coming to that extractor or any of those mm -hmm. things in the supply chain. And that's all a symptom of prohibition. 
if having in place the ability to regulate, to have product recall abilities, to know that there is a tested and safe product is an important part of when we're talking about human consumption of goods that are smokable and, and food. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important to know we're not getting poisoned. And it, it, with these cartridges, it's very difficult. It's not as if you can you know, simply look at a cart and be like, oh, this is, uh, this is unsafe. I, I can tell from my eyesight that this contains this particular molecule at this level. Yeah. That's, you're not going to test it yourself and see no. if it's safe or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in, in some states, you know, don't even test when the, the oil is in the cartridge versus outside of the cartridge. So you don't know if the cartridge could be the problem in testing. And that's part of the patchwork issue that comes around here. Um, with having a federal prohibition. Uniform standardization is really the the best solution, which is what we advocate for. So can you explain what you mean exactly by uniform standardization? So testing labs uh, throughout the the country should be able to test cannabis uh, to say in... So the Schedule One status makes sure you can't have interstate commerce, can't have a be, it can't have it be legal, and you also can't cross state lines with any of your product for testing uh, mm-hmm. or to do any of that kind of stuff. So when in a, in a legalized environment, the advantage is that the federal agencies that are responsible for regulating alcohol, such as TTV, or the FDA for regulating food or edibles, would have the ability then to say, this is what testing means in all 50 states. You can go above it, but you can't go below it. You cannot add these things. You cannot test positive for these things anywhere in this country and sell it as a product. The, the only entity within the country that actually really has the power to uh, prohibit specific additives on a nationwide scale is, of course, the federal government. New York can't tell California, don't add these things. But the federal government can. And, it's, and what we'd, we'd like to, the role that we'd eventually like to see the federal government taking is that role of saying, okay, we know these things are unsafe. No product in any state can contain these unsafe things and allow the states to develop how they want to, the types of products and the types of, uh, and the, the types of supply chain management and the types of tools that they need to to actually have a robust interstate trade. It, it's, it's an interesting tension with, with libertarian principles too, because you know, obviously you, know, you want smart regulation and it's important. And there's some regulations that have been suggested that aren't as advantageous, such as THC caps that only forces chronic medical patients to consume more cannabis in order to get the same level of effect from CBD or THC. As in like, you know, uh, you'd have to smoke 25 cigarettes a day instead of uh, one cigarette a day to get your right amount of THC or yep. CBD. So they're limiting yeah. the amount of THC you're, that you're able to have in there. and Yeah, yeah, and those are ineffective regulations. Mm-hmm. But when you look at things like testing standards for an oil where someone cannot tell what molecules are in there, and when you have a real public safety thing, there is an important role for the federal government. There's a reason it has the Commerce Clause powers, and that's so that it can make interstate trade regular and safe. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, you kind of hit on it before, but the, the hesitancy from a libertarian standpoint is obviously, you know, we've seen in history when the federal government has control over, you know, for example, regulating our food and uh, and, and setting standards there and put it, putting out their, uh, their, their food pyramid. Uh, obvi- obviously, they're there were big problems um, I'm with that, which is played out in, you know, a lot of the uh, – health issues that we see in today's society, which has evolved and uh, recommendations have changed. But aren't we really, I mean, I understand in an, 
you know, ideally, obviously, the federal government is going to make the right choices uh, from a regulation standpoint around chemicals and whatnot. But who's to say that they couldn't be uh, corrupted in a certain way where if, you know, a favored company, for whatever reason, um, sort of through cronyism, is able to uh, maybe skirt by with, uh, with different regulations. I mean, we see so often um, with legislation that it's really the biggest players in a, in a marketplace that end up um, designing the regulation, which can then push out the, the, the smaller, more innovative companies. So there were... I don't know if there was a question there. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I, I yeah, I totally understand the sentiment, and this is this is actually one of uh, this this is a large area of discussion that comes up for us, especially on the, the trade association side. And the interesting part is, look at the craft brew industry. How advantageous has it been for craft brewers in order to be able to access the inter- internet, to trade across state lines, and to break down those barriers? Small businesses, large businesses. When we're talking about a framework for interstate trade that's clear and that doesn't have uh, a crazy amount of uh, insane regulations in it that don't actually make sense for public safety, that's that's efficient, that creates a truly robust marketplace. And it's something we don't have in the United States right now for cannabis. We don't have inter- legal interstate trade. And that fundamentally messes with the, how we can even perceive the economy within the American mm-hmm. sphere. Can we like think of any other good where you can't transport it across states or sell it across different states or where your market share in California is limited to the 20 million or so adults that are, that are in the marketplace for those mm-hmm. rather than the 200 million adults in the American marketplace. So it, there's a unique situation with, with cannabis where, where those criticisms kind of fall by the wayside regardless of, of, of the veracity because of the common interest of all businesses. Uh, Schedule one status is the abs- is an absolute enemy to any size cannabis business. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a total prohibition. It doesn't matter if you're the the largest cannabis business in the world or the smallest person in Oklahoma who just got a license to to grow and put your first seeds in. No matter what, the DEA views you the same way. So, I mean, obviously, we've seen many states legalized recreationally and, and medically, but still, that Schedule One status federally yep. is, is a huge problem. When do you think, if you had to, you know, put on your, uh, if you had to, if you had to make a prediction, um, when do you think we could see that change and, and see that uh, really the classification change? I think that uh, I don't want to put a specific time limit on it because this is uh, it's a sensitive area. There there is a large education gap because the you know the federal lawmakers haven't been dealing with this issue for a long time. Mm-hmm. They're just starting to hold hearings on the issue. Their staffs are really starting to learn the issue more deeply and, and to really pay attention to it because it's been a state problem for a long time uh, rather than a federal problem. So. I, I don't want to put a, a timeline on it, but I would <clears throat> I would say that there's been a lot more consensus forming around the idea that uh, descheduling is the right approach. The the question is how we deal with the rest of descheduling, such as the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Uh, you know, for example, if we if we re- deschedule cannabis tomorrow, uh, what legal products exist under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act? I, I haven't seen a lot of IND applications to the FDA for cannabis products and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So the, part of it is, is dealing with incorporating the existing state products and existing state infrastructures to make sure in federal legalization there isn't a huge sweep of the marketplace. So, like, let's let's say tomorrow descheduling passed. There's just a clean bill that said we mm-hmm. deschedule cannabis since no longer in Schedule One. Every cannabis product on the market is now an adulterated drug. 
in interstate commerce under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, out of the frying pan into the fire. So the, these larger policy issues are, are now the stuff that we're starting to work through, and it's, it's going to take some time to work through that at the federal level and to, and to get a real understanding of how to adapt the various kinds of authorities that exist outside of the Controlled Substances Act that affect cannabis in a world where it's not in Schedule One. So is this is this partially what's going on now with the CBD marketplace? Why there's this gray area, even though we had in the farm bill, what was that last December, where hemp was oh, yes. legalized, right? But today we're in this weird sort of in-between space where, sure, you can go, you can buy CBD products and oils and all those things. I, I mean, at my local gas station, I can go in and buy it. I can order it online. Some All states that is illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, is it, I mean, I guess the, uh, the FDA could come in and do a raid and shut down the store, right? Or Oh, yeah. And they've sent warning letters to a couple of the, the larger operators. Right now, the FDA is undergoing a rulemaking process to try to see some way to dealing with the CBD as, an, as a non-drug uh, additive for food. So the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, it's this it's large regulatory bill, but it, there's a, a core set of rules that says you cannot be a drug and also be a food or a cosmetic. It's called drug preclusion. You, you, so, you're, so you you're, can't you're, be a drug and also be a, a supplement, or so or, if something or was a food, generally, yeah. If, <laughs> yeah. if something was, that's crazy. So, so is is this what's happening with CBD? Since CBD came onto the marketplace, um, it's it's been prescribed for like seizures, right, and different all Epidiolex. kinds of different medical cases. Yeah, so, so now they have to like sort of bridge that gap and has to be it can be prescribed, but also if you want to, you know, put some in your uh, your smoothie, you can do that too. Yeah, that's that's kind of the the issue, the, the tension they're trying to deal with because Epidiolex went through the the drug application process with the FDA. It's an FDA approved drug, and now there are you know five to seven years of drug preclusion or mm-hmm. whatever there was. Over no one else can even produce the same drug, let alone put it into a food <laughs> instead of a drug. Yes, so the FDA has rulemaking authority that can deal with that, but. At the same time, Congress has the power to amend the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to make a clear process. Uh, for example, uh, Global Alliance for Cannabis Commerce, we have a model bill that uh, suggests on how to regulate cannabis. And you know, we're actually looking to introduce version 2.0 early next year, uh, updating for all the new changes that we've thought about and dealt with over the last year and feedback we've received. But uh, how, we, how we like to deal with the FDA is to follow uh, the same process that uh, was used during 2012 when the FDA realized that nitrogen and laughing gas and, and those kinds of things were unapproved drugs <laughs> and rolled them all outside of uh, the approved drug index. Hmm. So all the, all the nitrogen gas you, you couldn't use after 2012. Well, Congress passed a bill that said as long as you uh, – are producing something in accordance with the United States Pharmacopeia, the general formulary index for how to produce every drug in the world that we allow to be sold in the United States, mm-hmm. then you can just get a certification from the FDA that you comply with pharmacy standards and that product can be sold in interstate commerce. So what we suggest in our bill is to do the same thing with cannabis. Have the pharmacopoeia relist it. The, it was listed in the pharmacopoeia for 87 years, from 1850 to 1937, and the pharmacist can come up with a, a proper formulary for fluid extract or cannabis or tincture of cannabis and all of that to uh, provide that kind of uh, framework without disrupting the product significantly because there's now a set of generics that every company that exists can draw from and then introduce into interstate commerce. 
that we consider smart, efficient regulation as opposed to, say, making every variation of a vaporizer go through the new drug combination device process or something like that. Which would be so, ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the FDA stuff is a, is a very interesting set of implications, and it's really important to get it right for public safety. It's mm-hmm. critical that, that we make sure that we are dealing with, with safe things in interstate commerce, because as we see come up, this inconsistent patchwork scheme uh, among the states just doesn't allow for that regular commerce that, that we want. The, the United States is a free trade union of 50 states. Mm -hmm. That's what we're supposed to be. And the federal government is not allowing that free trade and not providing those those smart regulatory conditions to flourish that trade, let alone domestically or internationally. So you've referenced uh, your bill. Your bill is this a bill that's that's backed by the Global Alliance of Cannabis Commerce? Or yeah, it's our okay. model bill. We we've released model legislation for free okay. use for legislators. It can be incorporated into existing descheduling bills, standalone measure. But uh, the the idea is to make sure that we have that kind of text and those ideas out there for for lawmakers to be grappling with. Okay, and has there been feedback from lawmakers or? Very positive so far. Yeah. Uh, from the meetings we've had, it's been very positive. They, they've obviously come back with questions concerning the complexity of the bill. If you if you look at it, seventy five pages. So, <laughs> they're sure. Is, it, is it available for people to read? Yes, um, online our policy center. We also have okay. a section by section analysis, uh, so you can you know, see how it's it's supposed to work in tandem with everything there in the bill. But yeah, it's it's been very positively received. Uh, it's been positively received by you know, fellow industry advocates and advocates as well. It's it's seen as a pretty smart solution to to the regulatory issues. And we're actually very excited to see more improvements in 2.0 next year. Okay. So if you could just give us um, just like an overview of what is the uh, the mission of the Global Alliance for Cannabis Commerce? So our goal is to advocate in front of lawmakers and, and policy and policy professionals to improve the conditions for the cannabis industry for adult and medical use. Um, we're here to legalize and deschedule and to get international trade for the, for the economy up and running. Um, mm-hmm. it, Mexico is going to be legalizing very soon, as we've seen from the news. Canada's already there. Uh, we're the only North American trading partner that is not uh, right. getting in with the, the cannabis economy. And now that's starting to have more consequences in global trade as we see EU nations legalizing and importing and exporting between you know, England, Germany, Canada, and such. So is this something, uh, speaking just of overall of descheduling cannabis uh, legalization, is this something that you, that you could foresee um, going forward? And I, I know you've previously worked with Senator Rand Paul. Um, this is a bipartisan issue, right? This is this something you could see really sort of develop quickly. And uh, we talked about time frame. who knows when it'll happen. But uh, do you think that when it does actually get pushed forward and, and we get some traction here, that it will be both a Democrat and Republican issue? I know there's political dynamics there that, that could prevent that, but. I'm, I'm sure it'll be bipartisan. The, yeah. the real, politically speaking, it has to be. Uh, the Senate, in order to get something done in the United States Senate, you absolutely need 60 votes no matter what. Uh, there's, there's not a 60 vote split towards either party on the horizon. So it's no matter what happens, it will be a bipartisan fix to do cannabis. And what type of, I know we're coming into campaign season here with, uh, 2020 uh, quickly approaching. I think have all pretty much all of the democratic candidates 
come out for some form of uh, cannabis legalization. Um, I know Trump, when he campaigned, at least he was saying, leave it up to the states, but uh, not much progress has been made there. Well, what what are, you know, what, what is each side saying? What, what's their general message been and in, in their interactions with, with you? Uh, in, in terms of where it's the presidential shaping up, uh, yeah, the, the Democratic candidates are all there in some form or way, shape or another uh, for reforming cannabis. Um, the, the president's position has consistently been to let the states do what the states are doing. And administratively, he's definitely been doing that. Um, you know, for example, uh, under the under the Bush administration, Obama administration, there were still some DEA raids of licensed mm-hmm. stores and in, uh, in various states. That's not going on now from what we've heard or been reported to unless those stores are actually doing something that really, really is wrong. Uh, but the the administration has pretty much left states their own devices uh, on this issue, which is, you know, more or less consistent with the appropriations measures that Congress has consistently taken since 2014, uh, and you know, pretty much made that the necessary position of the executive. So it, it, Trump's been pretty consistent with uh, Congress's salutary neglect of intrastate policy. Uh, I'd, I'd say the the current federal policy is salutary neglect because they've passed the appropriations amendment since 2014 that says you can't prosecute for the the state legal cannabis work. So the He's generally kept consistent with that, and I, I don't imagine he'd be inconsistent with that going into the next election cycle. Yeah, it'll just be interesting to watch, especially once we do get into the general election. If you have a, a Democratic candidate on stage talking about potentially descheduling and, and legalization, to see to see what what happens. I mean, that I, I don't know. If I'm excited would, uh, for that moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would, it would be great. <laughs> it would be fantastic. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, Trump is a populist. At least I, I think he is. So that that, that could that could uh, push things forward. But uh, and cannabis is popular. You know, two thirds of the country now is in favor yeah. of regulating like, like alcohol, and over ninety six percent is in favor of medicinal use. So there's there's a lot to be said in terms of polling and those advantages. Uh, yeah. Well, it's been amazing. I mean, CBD, just seeing that market, how quickly it has developed. And obviously with, with young people, that, that that could be predicted. But with people, you know, baby boomers and, you know, who they had the stigma against against the cannabis plant. And to see them really accept it, um, I think it's very encouraging. It's, it is incredible. It's funny. The largest growing sector of cannabis users is the uh, senior citizens and yeah. retirees. It's it's incredible how much they've embraced the medicinal uses of it. Uh, it's, it's it's used as a general analgesic and dealing and CBD's effects with arthritis and that sort of stuff. It's it's just incredible, and it's really been word of mouth and just experiences retreat kind of mm-hmm. retaught that generation against the stigma. Um, for example, my my parents are in a retirement community in Florida, and and they tell me regularly that cannabis use in that community is very very prominent, and it's just like oh oh my gosh, <laughs> it's like, a college, like a college dormitory, yeah, it's, it's even worse. Yeah. <laughs> in a college dormitory, was, you didn't have land to grow the plants on. <laughs> oh, so yeah, it's it's just incredible the stories you hear out of out of these retirement communities in Florida nowadays. Uh, I, other other advocates in DC are also sharing very very similar stories from their parents or grandparents' communities, and yeah. some of them have their parents or grandparents getting in it. It's like incredible. That's so funny. I, I had one advocate tell me like, uh, "Hey, my mother uh, was a dare officer as a middle school, and now she's treating her arthritis and cannabis." 
<laughs> That's progress. That's the definition of progress right there. I like yeah, it. Absolutely. So just uh, before I let you go, Randall, if you could just let my listeners know um, where they can uh, – you know, learn more about more about you, where they can learn more about the Global Alliance for Cannabis Commerce, and uh, anything else you want to uh, promote. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, we are at globalcannabiscommerce.org. Uh, you can look us up also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. We have handles and profiles on all of those. We're regularly updating on industry news and events, as well as what policy measures and steps we're taking. Uh, love uh Love being on the show. Thank you so much for having me and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully chatting again soon. You're welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Randall Meyer. I know I did. I learned a ton and uh, hopefully the Felony Friday audience did as well. This is a a very controversial and a very important topic. I think a lot of people are misinformed. Uh, a lot of people think that just vaping alone is causing a lot of these lung issues and people to die when um, I think digging into the actual facts behind it, um, you'll find that it's not the uh, the vaping itself that is the problem. It is actually um, the vapes that are coming from the black market uh, which is caused by cannabis prohibition, which is leading to uh, these severe lung issues and uh, and the issues there. What, what we didn't talk about was the actions that the Trump administration has threatened to take and still plans on taking. Uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar has said the Trump administration plans to continue uh, to go forward with a ban that would remove flavored e-cigarettes from the market. Uh, you have companies like Juul coming out and saying that they're going to remove these flavored uh, uh, vaping uh, juices from the market. I, I've heard online sales. I don't know if, if Juul is also halting sales, uh, you know, brick and mortar stores. I, I have no idea. Um, just to, I mean, just a note on that and how ridiculous that is, obviously, you know, I don't think it's a good idea for, for kids to be vaping, uh, for young kids to be vaping, for young kids to be smoking cigarettes, for young kids to be chewing tobacco, any of those things. But just to point out a few things, smokeless tobacco, chew, cha, is available in many, many different flavors, you know, from cherry to wintergreen to all these different things. I think there, I don't know if there is, still is, I think there used to be a bubblegum flavor that, that Skull had. No one's taking that stuff off the market. That's still right there at the gas station for all the kids to see if they want to somehow get their hands on a, uh, a can of that. But that's sort of a, not argument, not an argument that I like to make. I think when it comes down to it in a more free society, um, with you would have safer options and people would make better choices when safer options are available. So a lot of what we talked about with Randall was, I mean, we want to bring things out of the shadows. A lot of what is causing problems, um, causing these lung issues, are the the different things that are mixed with the black market cannabis. That is the issue. The issue is not stuff you're buying over the counter. When well, it's not to be said, there obviously things things can't be bought in the free market over the counter that cause harm. Cigarettes, um, as I talked about with uh, with chewing tobacco, things like that. That's not to say that should be banned. I don't think it should be banned. People got to make their own decisions. At the end of the day, everyone else is looking for a scapegoat, looking to blame somebody else. It's up to parents. It's up to 
um, you know, kids who are old enough to uh, to know better, to make better decisions, and not to uh, to do things that harm themselves. And you know what? If they want to harm themselves, you know, they might just eat Tide Pods. You know what I mean? Kids are gonna, kids did that anyway. That was the thing, eating Tide Pods. So you can't regulate away and make everybody safe. Because if you do that, we'll lose all our freaking freedom and we'll be stuck just uh, in a padded room staring at the walls and, and we'll all be safe. But that's that's all I got for today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join the Lions of Liberty Pride. Go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. You can hear all of our bonus shows. You know, something that we don't talk about enough is this is a publicly we are a three day per week show. But when you factor in our bonus content, We are a lot of the time a five days per week show. Uh, We have recurring uh, and some weekly shows that are are bonus content that you're missing out on. So to get access to all that stuff, you just got to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. Go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And with that being said, everybody have a great weekend. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is liberty burning. (laughs) 